Welcome to Pub Theology Live, a weekly conversation on life and faith over a pint. Tonight's episode is brought to you by our official sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar. Yes, Craft Beer Cellar, a family of retail craft beer stores focused on amazing beer, hospitality, education, with 23 locations in 11 states and expanding. So head over to Craft Beer Cellar, C-E-L-L-A-R, craftbeercellar.com for a location near you. And uh, we are giving you a chance to win free beer from Craft Beer Cellar in the form of this magnificent gift card. Nobody's watching the live stream right now, but if you were, you'd see me holding up this beautiful Craft Beer Cellar uh, gift card for 25 bucks. This is why you should watch the live stream on Tuesday nights to see the visual effects of the Craft Beer uh, gift card. Um, so keep, keep, keep listening. We're going to tell you how you can win. Absolutely. Thank you, Ogan. You can join the conversation by following us on Twitter at PubTheology using hashtag PTLive, and you can comment on Facebook at facebook.com slash PubTheology, and as noted, best comments of the month will be in the running to win a $25 gift certificate from Craft Beer Cellar. We're going to announce that in two weeks, so comment Tonight, during the live show, comment anytime this week uh, as you're listening to the podcast. Make sure to use the hashtag PTLive so we can see your comments or comment on Facebook, and you will be in the running. Where can you find us live? You can find us Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern Time at PubTheology.com, or you can listen anytime at SoundCloud.com slash PubTheologyLive. You can also find us on Stitcher and very soon on iTunes or your favorite streaming podcast app. And just to be clear, they don't they don't have to comment during the live show. They can comment on any time. Anytime after the fact you're listening. I would even say if you want to comment while you're listening on SoundCloud, you can put it there too. Uh, we've had a couple folks uh, throw up some comments on SoundCloud. Um, you know, hit uh, like you said, Facebook pub theology. I don't think I don't think we're gonna take comments on our personal pages, are we? Because that's gonna be too much to keep track of. Nope. Nope. So you gotta do it at pub theology page uh, on Twitter at pub theology on SoundCloud. If you do it on my page, it will not count. And if you pray to win the f- to, if you pray to win the free beer, is God listening to those prayers? Ooh, <laughs> that'll be on that'll be on the on the show next week. Bonus well, question. I, but I've, tonight, tonight praying, is I've our... Been, I've been praying for free, free beer all my life, and, and I got some, so... <laughs> it, 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 it took about 30 years, but here we go. Prayer <laughs> answered. Tonight is our much-anticipated Holy Week show, or just plain Holy Show. Holy Show. We discussed the events of Jesus last week in Jerusalem, the triumphal entry... The actions in the temple, the Last Supper, Good Friday, Easter, and more. So strap in. This might be a two-beer show. Nice. My name's Brian, and I'm uh, tuning in from Michigan, uh, drinking a local beer from Saugatuck Brewing. Uh, Welcome, Tina and Ogan. Hello. What's up? Um, Ogan, you going to do your beer? Because I like your beer. I'm drinking, uh, in honor of Holy Week, a holy bear. This is the Spencer Trappist Ale. Oh. Uh, in the style of the uh, Trappist monks. So we we going, we going holy, holy, holy. Fruity accents, dry finish, and a light hop bitterness. It is very, very tasty. Um, and, and Tina likes it because that's, that's the, can I, can I share that? You want people to know yeah, that? that's okay. Oh. That, that is the, that is the name of one of her sons, Spencer. 
So she's she loves the fact that I'm drinking a beer. I love after, it. It's yeah. cool label. Well done. Um, and and per you know, I was deciding whether I wanted beer or wine for this week, and Brian suggested the wine since you know the the, uh, the Last Supper, and <laughs> so yes. I got. Um, I do have to say though, it's a pagan wine. I got pagan wine. It's it's not <laughs> it's kosher. Called, it's called Rhiannon, and, and it's actually very tasty. It's from California, but it is um, it's the goddess Rhiannon is a figure of power and mystery in Celtic mythology. So it's a mythological Ooh, wine. I like that. We'll, we'll get well, into know. that on a less holy show. Well, no, I'm <laughs> going to say it, it's appropriate to talk about paganism on on our. Easter Day. Spring Equinox. Well, no, not Spring Easter itself. Easter itself is a is a co-op of another another pagan festival. Did you not know this? Yeah, the Spring Equinox. Well, no, the the in celebration of the goddess Easter. There's actually a goddess called Easter. E oh, really? And that's how we get that's how we get rabbits and eggs for Easter. That's all pagan mythology. Very yeah, true. Yeah. She was she was a big fan of. Uh, rabbits and eggs, because she was—I think she was a goddess. Uh, help. One of one of the things she represented was fertility, and nothing says fertility like rabbits. Um, <laughs> and eggs represent fertility. So, so when you know Christianity was coming up, just like around uh, Christmas time, they—oh, here's another pagan festival we can co-op. So, so they did that. It, it makes sense. People are already celebrating. You kind of want to like go in with the regular traditions. And, and, well, it's more takeover than go in, but. You know, that was that's what the Christians did. They were like, you know, we're I know, I know. Their festivals. Should we hand this back over to Brian before we get too deep in this? <laughs> well, we skipped all the way to Easter. You're right. Let's back up. No, no, that's okay. Actually, you guys are right on track because question number one says, "What was your favorite part about Easter as a child?" Do you have memories of Easter as a kid? What 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 did you like? I'll tell you what I didn't like. Can we can we can I do that? That's not, that's not the question. Well, I'm. You're I'm, being I'm, negative. I'm, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Taking over the question. Go Wait, ahead. Didn't you like? Was, so here's the thing that I remember most about being a young child is that the my the little church that I attended in Barbados, we would have these little Easter pageants, and the kids made their own Easter bonnets. So here I am, you know, in, a, in my little suit, and I have this just bizarre contraption of an Easter bonnet in my head, on my head. Sometimes with actual like little little. Chicks, paper chicks and eggs and all kind of weird stuff uh, going on. I, I, it was, it was hideous. It was hideous looking. But please yeah. tell me you have pictures. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, I can't say that. We, we, we needed a photo to tweet out during this. Uh, segment. Yes. No. Um, maybe next time I go back to Barbados, we'll see if there are any uh, archival shots of that. But I don't recall anyone taking pictures. But I was, I was handy with a bonnet. Yeah, bonnets weren't just for girls, man. I wore Easter bonnets. So to this day, you don't wear hats because that traumatized you so badly? I don't wear hats because I am sexy with my head uncovered. Oh, dear that's Lord. What, that's wow. what that is not the topic. <laughs> she asked the question. I was answering. Okay. All right. Tina, favorite part about Easter as a child? You know what? Um, I, I thought about this question a lot because... I, there's not like one thing that I really loved about Easter, but it was like the energy of having everybody together and all the kids just running around playing outside and the excitement of you know the the candy in your basket and just talking about it and trading. And I remember one Easter, 
because my mom's house backs up against woods, um, and it's they were always my favorite place when I was little. And one Easter we were, you know, tubing down the creek, and the next Easter we were sledding. So it's just it's just such a you know versatile time of year. It's just I don't know. I just I love the energy of spring, and with Easter it was just everybody being together. It was a lot of fun. That's, That's great. That's great. How about you? Yeah, well, my earliest memory was uh, on Easter was uh, I was breathing liquid and then suddenly forced to breathe air, and the lights got really bright. I was actually was born it your on Easter. Birthday? Oh. In March, it was an early Easter in March, just like this year. Uh, but of the Easter's I remember, I we always uh, my mom had out uh, a basket for each of the kids. You know, this, like, basket with, like, the fake green grass in it and then lots of eggs and jelly beans and a chocolate rabbit. And and that was always great, fun, good candy. So, wait a minute. I can't I can't talk about my good looks without a hat on, but you can talk about your birthday. This is a double standard here. So. <laughs> I don't see the correlation at all with that. Double standard. Off topic. Totally off topic. His favorite part about Easter was was being born. He doesn't even remember it. Off topic. I was a handsome baby though, so <laughs> that, that's, that's how it connects to your answer. I bet you were. I bet you were born with the curls in the beard too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, who is this monkey baby? <laughs> too much hair. Oh my goodness. So, um, do you think Christian parents are crossing any boundaries or lines when they celebrate Easter by involving the eggs and the candy and the Easter bunny? Well, in light in light of what I shared earlier about the, the pagan connection, I don't I don't think many Christian parents are aware of the pagan oranges or the pagan association of the Easter bunny and the eggs. I'm sure that if they did, a lot fewer of them uh, would be um, celebrating Easter with um, in that way, and having their children celebrate, I could be wrong, but I, I don't. I don't think as many would be. I agree with you, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, and I mean, this is because I'm not a hardcore Christian, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it because it, the resurrection. It, I mean, it's new birth. It's, I you know, I think people get way too uptight about stuff like this. I really do. You know, it, it's. People are having fun. Like, yeah, I have a problem with people buying their kids like iPods and, you know, stuff like that for Easter. I think they go a little overboard with the gifting. Um, but you know, buying your, you know, having an Easter egg hunt and and buying some chocolate. I mean, I personally don't think Jesus would have had a problem with that. You know, it's it's community. It's about being together and and just having fun. Yeah, I think Jesus would be more open to that uh, interfaith or borrowing from other faiths stuff than maybe uh, than maybe we can be sometimes. I don't yeah. think he would be. Why? Because he was a good Jewish boy. Jesus Jesus was a Jew. I don't. I don't. Yeah, but he didn't tell everybody they had to be Jewish. No, no, no. no. I'm not saying I'm not saying he was a proselytizer. I say from his perspective, he he was here both following fulfilling Jewish tradition law. Whatever, I don't think he would have said, uh, "Yeah, go ahead and engage in some pagan things. It's okay." I mean, I mean, we but when we read the scripture, there's there's no sense of Jesus 
um, being a universalist or you know being a, a pluralist. He he was he was a Jew, and he was about you know the the part of our the Jewish laws and traditions. But he was he was a Jew. No, you're right. You're right. And you know the the part of our celebration of Easter that he would uh, like the least is the uh, big Easter ham that we have. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, let's just be as non-kosher as we can. You know, it's like exactly. Oh my word. Exactly. That you know, other 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 not fond memory of Easter Sundays growing up. Sunrise service. Like, oh yeah. yeah. You know why? Why need to get up so early? Not good. Well, because Jesus did. Really, the tomb was already empty. I think Jesus early in the morning, the women went woke to the up the tomb. night before. He was <laughs> out the night before. He didn't get up at 3 a.m. and go. But he did he really get up? Oh, no, we're jumping ahead. We'll hold that thought. <laughs> hold that thought. Just kidding. All right, where are we at now? So, uh, da, da, da. How, do you, how does Easter compare to Christmas in terms of uh, a Christian holiday that you look forward to or enjoy? Um, well... I look forward to Christmas more because there's gifts. I mean, nobody's wrapping up anything for me at Easter. <laughs> I'm being See, honest. There it is. That's the bottom I, line. I'm being honest. No, there. In all seriousness, there is definitely, I think, from a from a uh, cross cultural perspective, more of that energy of festivity and generosity around Christmas time than there is around Easter. Mm. You know, so so that's part of my preference for. Christmas as well. No one's running around at Easter time buying, and I mean this sincerely, with that energy of we have to give something to someone. There's less of an energy of giving. Around okay, but listen to the way you said that we have to give something. I, I don't like the whole six weeks before Christmas that it's all about Christmas. And yeah, okay, it's great that people are more giving around Christmas time, but it's also more hectic and annoying. I like I like Easter because it springs up on you and and it is a day to celebrate and have fun and there's not all the stress beforehand. See, it's true. Much less Easter prep. The problem is you you soft core Christians. Anything soft core is a lack of commitment. That's what it is. But first of all, I don't. I've said this before. I'm not a Christian. And second <laughs> of all, you are a soft core Christian. You claimed you claimed not five minutes ago that you are a, that you are not a hardcore Christian. I said I'm not. Right. Okay, well, whatever. Then, all right. Are you any at all? Do you? What do you no. claim? No. Don't force a confession on on air. That could that could go over. You know. No. This is. Would you Would you consider yourself an atheist, agnostic? Where are you? What I saw the term the other day. Spiritual um, but not religious. No. It start. Uh, it starts with a P. It's not agnostic. Like I. You're Presbyterian. I believe that there's wisdom in all religions. <laughs> Brian, no the such a brat. Um, no, I I believe there's wisdom in all religions, and there's not just one path to God. Uh, yeah, you're pluralist. Is that what it is? No, it was a prettier word than that. Pluralist, but that's 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 essentially what pluralism is. You're not you're not affiliated with any one thing. You you embrace all paths. I mean, in many ways, I as a Union minister and pluralist as well. Pantheist? Um, that's yes. Not, yes, I think that was it. It's a different thing. That's not, that's not what pantheism. is it? No, what is that? So pantheism means that God is everything. Like, everything is God. 
like down to the literal, you know. Everything is a, like a little piece of God, and God is everything that exists in everything and is everything. Yeah, yeah, that's what I see. I think that's pretty. I like that. But anyhow, carry on. I'm more I'm more panentheist, which is God is in everything and everything is in God. Yeah. So in that sense, God is still beyond. God is God. You know, can't be defined by just what we see and experience. God's beyond that as well. I like that too. So that would be. What is your favorite, but the real question is, what is your favorite flavor of jelly bean? I don't like jelly beans. Taco ah. cat. Even <laughs> <laughs> this taco cat thing. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Dip that in the bud. Buttered popcorn. I'm throwing taco cat. Taco, I can't even say it. Taco cat. <laughs> taco. Well, it's because you tried to say it backwards the first time. I'm throwing that in the category of pu- puppy, monkey, baby, things that should. Oh no! I'm sorry. No, I totally disagree. No, with you. A, yeah, I agree. I disagree also. Oh. Yeah. All right. So I think the best flavor is liquor, black licorice, um, but that's just me. The black jelly beans are my favorite. All righty. Your kids oh. probably love you, Brian, because they're like, "Give Dad the black jelly beans." <laughs> exactly. What? What is? Well, let me ask you guys this in in relation to this. I mean. What do you guys do with your kids uh, at Easter time? I know Brian, you've you've probably got the youngest kids of us. Mine is fifteen. Tina's got like what an eighteen and a fourteen year old or a thirteen year old. Seventeen and fourteen. Seventeen and fourteen. All your kids, Brian, are like, are they twelve and under? Right, twelve and under. Um, and you got four of them. God bless you. Um, what 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 do you guys do for Easter? What are your Easter traditions? Yeah, so uh, we tend to. Uh, Hide some, hide some eggs or candy around around the yard, and they kind of have a little Easter egg hunt. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's the thing that kids get how, how super much, excited about. And how run much around do you and talk to them? How much do you talk to them as a as a minister parent? How much do you talk to them about about Easter in relation to the Christian slash Jesus story. Sure, yeah. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll talk about that also, and you know, read the read one of the accounts uh, of Easter Sunday, and you know, talk about that and what we think that means and that kind of stuff as well. Um, gotcha. Yeah, but you know, as a kid, I mean, my parents did that too. But what always mattered was, did we get candy and how much? You know. Right. The important things. It's interesting. I know this is kind of you know uh, getting off the track, but also as a minister parent, I don't I don't talk to my child a lot about about religion and about hmm. uh, stuff like that or theology or anything. I don't. For me, it's interesting. I it's is in a sense, I want to break the preacher's kid stereotype, <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Um, I want. Well, Ogan, she grew up with two two parents that were. I know she's a double preacher's kid. Yeah, so so don't you think she's absorbed enough that you don't have to sit down and talk to her about certain things? You know what I mean? Well, it, I I do. Yes, I mean, it, you know, kind of kind of the rule I have here with her is that uh, yeah, you gotta you gotta be at church with me on Sunday. Anything else we do during the week is optional, but you know, you come to church on Sunday. And I think she's done enough Sundays at Unity churches to kind of get a sense of. Um, you know her own spirituality, her own understanding of God, as much as a, you know, still still developing fifteen year old can understand. But it's always fun. It's always fun when you know she hears about a 
you know, a Bible reference in a cultural context or even at church and she's and, and people assume because she's a preacher's kid, she knows stuff. And she comes home and she's like, I don't know about this story. When do y'all teach me about that? I'm a preacher's <laughs> kid and I don't know nothing about the Bible. <laughs> you know, so it's 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 interesting. But I feel like I don't I don't feel like I should be forcing that on her if it makes sense to give her that normal experience of yes, come to church, interact with other teens your age and learn it in that teen appropriate um, context. No, I get, I get it, Ogan. I mean, I think uh, the, in different contexts, depending on your yeah. tradition and church setting, there can be this unfair expectation put on pastor's kids to be a model of holiness and to know the Bible inside and out, and I think that's kind of ridiculous. Uh, so, We should have our kids on the show one night. We should do an episode with our kids. That'd be fun. Let's see what they know. <laughs> 7 o'clock episode. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you guys that. might do that without me because I don't know if you want my boys on the show. <laughs> I especially want your boys on the show. Because I tell you what, I do sit down and I talk to them because I've taken them to many different kinds of churches over the years um, before we settled on unity. And I have very, we have very candid conversations about spirituality and religion and what other people believe and what they're, you know, it's okay for them to think. Um, they actually did ask if, if they could come on the show one time, and I'm like, yeah, I don't think that would be appropriate. Oh, we should do it. We should do it. We, yes, a, a, a youth-oriented episode with the youth. Sounds good. There we go. All right. So on Facebook, Mark, Mark has commented and says, my grandfather owned an ice cream and candy shop, and we would always get a big chocolate rabbit on Easter. Oh, nice. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. We all need a grandpa with an ice cream and candy shop. You know? I was going to say. <laughs> I tell you what, though, those big chocolate rabbits were so ridiculous because it would take you like a month to eat them. <laughs> well, it took you, you a like, month to eat like them. Like the solid chocolate? Yeah, like the huge ones that like, even the hollow ones, they're just so big. Mine, mine, was, mine was gone in under a week. Speak for yourself. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I always preferred the hollow, I think, for some reason. Yeah, didn't, yeah. All right, so let's dig in here to... Uh, some of the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, just this past Sunday was Palm Sunday uh, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the donkey, an episode known popularly as the Triumphal Entry. What do you think was the significance of that? Um, and what, yeah, what's happening on Palm Sunday and what was your experience of that growing up or recently? Um, well, you know, uh, wearing the minister hat, you know, we had our Palm Sunday service at our church. Please go watch the live stream, UnityOnTheRiver.org. Great service. Um, and this week, this week we're actually we've actually created a Garden of Gethsemane in our sanctuary. Cleared out all the chairs. It looks awesome. It's it's pretty cool. We set up a for a few days. We will have a you know people can come in and have a contemplative experience of their own. Um, in, in the garden, but I, I I think the the triumphal entry into Jerusalem was really I think Jesus thumbing his nose at the authorities. You know, he got himself in in a fair amount of trouble with them leading up to Jerusalem. He caps off all his wonderful um, acts of defiance by raising Lazarus from the dead and claiming divine authority and just really kind of pissing off the authorities the previous weeks. And I think this was him saying, you know, 
here I am. Here, here I am, and here's people recognizing that what I am bringing is something worthy of, of yeah. notice. I think he was like putting them on notice. Yeah, why do, why do you think it was uh, why do you think his entry was so significant? Because if we think about um, the Passover week, pilgrims would be coming from all over um, Israel and even from beyond for Jews who lived um, you know who had been living in other nations as well as Gentiles who would come to Jerusalem for this celebration. A lot of people would be entering Jerusalem that week. Why was there such a big to-do about Jesus? Entering? Well, he was at the height of his popularity, I think. Like I said, you know, he'd, he'd done a lot of miracles. He was on, on the radar of the religious authority. You can't raise a man from the dead and not go unnoticed, right? And I think people had begun to come around to uh, whether, whether they fully understood him as the Messiah, political, spiritual, religious, whatever they'd come around to the point of saying, we all heard about the you. We know who you are now, and we recognize that you're bringing something that maybe nobody else has brought before. I mean, after all, you just raised a man from the dead. So I think people were, people were excited to get on the bandwagon, if you will. And and that that's kind of the, like you said earlier about thumbing his nose at the authorities. That was, too. I mean, they treated him like a king. When when he entered, they you know they laid down the palms for him because that was right. the highest honor that you know they could bestow on him, and that yeah that was kind of thumbing everybody's you know it's like we don't care what the government says we're going to do what we believe is right. And at right. the same time, I think he knew it was sealing his fate because you know they were under Roman occupation, and the last thing you do when you're under Roman occupation is you know create create a uh, uh, a disturbance, you know, um, create a big following for yourself. You know, they say they say the Rom the Romans of of all the occupiers of those times, the Romans might have been the most benevolent as long as you paid your taxes and didn't stir up trouble. They didn't they didn't force you into worshiping their gods. They're like, do what you want to do, but pay your taxes on time and don't stir up trouble. Don't start rebellions. And this could have been foreseen as a rebellious act. And I think I think he knew that going in. It was a double edged sword. Yeah. And I think I think the point is well made as well that the people themselves are also potentially stirring up trouble by waving those palm branches, which was a symbol of um, of revolution and of Jewish independence. And that was one of the symbols that the Maccabees used in a um, when they had self ruled uh, in Israel a short time earlier, and so that symbol of the palm branch reminded them, man, we are under the thumb of Rome. We are under oppression, but we want freedom, even if it's violent freedom. And uh, so them waving all that and Jesus riding in on that donkey, I mean, that that is a political statement by Jesus, but also by the people attending. Mm -hmm. Yep. The beginning of the end. They had to make an example of him. <laughs> yeah, right? now... How much do you think Jesus coordinated this event? Did he orchestrate it? I mean, I've read some commentators say that Jesus is doing, uh, performing a bit of street theater and, and is doing this intentional, intentionally politically uh, dissident act. Did he? Do you think he he set the stage for some of the crowd to show up, or did that kind of happen spontaneously? I think I think a mix of both. I mean, because you know he yeah. sent the disciples ahead to get to get the cold. That's uh, right. 
so I'm sure there was a bit of um, why why would I send my disciples to get a colt for me to write in if I didn't think there was something to write in for, <laughs> right? So yeah. I think there was some behind the scenes um, getting the people together and. You know, uh, when you look at the history of Jesus and what what he did in the Gospels, um, I I always found it interesting that as much as he would, you know, some miraculous act and then tell the person, don't tell anyone, you know, he kind of always, there were other people, there were always other people around, you know, there were always other people around to witness what he did. And so he was, I think he was playing the... I'll make sure you see me, but I'm not going to brag about it kind of card. But so I humble, think, but not really humble. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, well, and talk about the donkey a little bit. What what did, what have you read about that, and what do you think the significance of riding a, a donkey specifically instead of, like, a, a, a horse or something? Which um, Humility. It was, it, was, it was an act of humility, as, you know, Tina was saying, humble but not so humble. But um, one of the one of the interpretations of that I've read about that writing that cult was saying, you know, I I am being this humble servant, uh, you know, playing into that whole whole suffering servant kind of deal because I'm I'm writing I'm writing this lowly animal which people I mean no one's no one's aspiring to ride a donkey like you said you know a horse a stallion so yeah. I'm this. Yeah. The simple, simple animal that, that in many ways is a beast of burden, you know, made, made for work, made for service. I've read a completely different account, though, that um, at the times, the kings would ride in on the horses if they were coming in, in an act of war. And they would ride in on a donkey if it was an act of peace. I don't think a king ever rode a donkey. Well, I, yeah, and I think that's the point. I think the people were hailing him as a king, and yet he rode in on a donkey. And so I think uh, Tina's point is right, that um, there are records from Josephus and others that Pilate would enter Jerusalem before the Passover riding a horse, like a war horse, as a show of power, surrounded by the Roman imperial guards. Um, and before Pilate, it was another Roman general who would enter um, the city on a war horse with a display of power. And so Jesus riding that donkey is, as Ogan said, a show of humility, but also a show of peace rather than violence and war. I I think, you know, I, I think what really happened, and you know me, never let the truth get in the way of a good story uh, or the facts, I think that is, I think he sent for a horse and <laughs> <a pretty kind laughs> <That's> one, <laughs> and they were like, they was like, sorry, sorry Jesus, this is the best we can do with such short notice. <laughs> oh, exactly. The donkey, and if we don't go now, we're gonna be late. So, hop <laughs> on, let's go. <laughs> we'll make up a good story to, to back yeah, it up. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. It's no. all about the optics. We can. He we can, had donkey. He had really good for you. <laughs> okay, which one of the twelve disciples was the killer PR rep? That's what I want to know. <laughs> exactly. You guys are killing me here. A donkey, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, but but actually, I mean, the, the gospel writers cue into the donkey specifically and harken back to one of the older prophets, I believe Zechariah, and a prophecy about your Messiah or your king will enter on a donkey, on the foal of a, of, of a donkey, and he will break the bow of the war horse. And so there's this intentional um, dichotomy uh, or contrast between the one they were to expect to would ride in on this animal of peace versus 
kings they'd known who'd ridden in on war. So do you think he really rode in on a donkey, or did they rewrite that? They wrote that after the fact to try and match the prophecy. Mm, That's a great question. Conspiracy theory. Or did they know about the prophecy, and they purposely ordered a donkey? Yeah, I think any of those things are options. Could have could have been that could have been that too, uh, I mean what I think what we what we know is that much of the writing of the gospels be, uh, were were um, I don't want to say altered but but after after Jesus' crucifixion and it was abundantly clear that this man was not going to be a political messiah that they had to rethink the whole well then why was he here if you know he's dead and. And then even later after that, you know, Romans came in. I forget when it was. They came in and leveled Jerusalem. Um, uh, was that in the 30s or the 40s, 80? I forget. But anyways, the point is that um, after all of this, they had to make sense of Jesus' existence and all the things that he said. So they were like, maybe this was a more of a spiritual Messiah. Let's go back in the the Torah and the Old Testament and and find, find some stuff that we could um, make a test to that. So it was, like, it was like proof after the fact rather than real prophecy. How do you feel about that, Brian? Well, I, I think we definitely have to be open to those possibilities. Um, I think as Ogan said, as the... Such as a diplomatic the, answer. Well, I think as the Jesus tradition grows after his life and death and, and resurrection that they're sitting on this and they're telling these oral stories and they're, they're t- also trying to interpret it. They're trying to make sense of it. What did his life mean, just as Ogan said? And I think sometimes they, or often they are looking to their own scriptures uh, in um, the Torah and the prophets to say, well, what, 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 what should we have recognized ahead of time and what parts of his life fit with some of these uh, texts from our tradition? And so, you know, it's... It's not easy to know when did Jesus do something, the historic Jesus, do something and they're reporting it historically, or when are they sort of creating a story that fits that narrative, or tweaking a story even to make it fit a particular text. Um, or just wholesale we, fiction to begin with. But no, I like what you just said, Brian, because we don't we all do that? I mean, don't we all fill in the blanks with what makes sense to us? And that's kind of how perspective works. Like I said, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. That's a little different. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I think it's entirely plausible that Jesus rode a donkey. I mean, I, I think because I think there was enough meaning in it without the reference to um, the prophet Zechariah for that to be a significant spiritual and political act that Jesus is doing that fit with his character and his life and teaching. And, uh, you know, if the... Um, the uh, scribes or the uh, gospel writers themselves wanted to make those connections uh, that to draw even further significance. I have no problem with that. So, Tina, are you familiar with the with the work of the Jesus Seminar? No, what's that? So, the Jesus Seminar is a group of uh, Bible scholars who basically took, among other things, but one one of the works they're famous for is taking, uh, looking at the Gospels, taking the words of Jesus, and dividing them into basically four rough categories. Uh, Things he and again, this is based on on all the research and the history we know about that time. Um, so, in the context, things he um, most likely didn't say, things things he probably didn't say, um, things he maybe didn't say, things maybe he said, and things pretty sure he he said. 
So they have these four categories, and and it's fascinating to read their words because um, w when we see some of the things that we attribute to Jesus, that he probably really didn't say at all. It's it's the words of the gospel writers putting words into Jesus's mouth to support, you know, the message they're trying to get across. It's no different. It's absolutely you no. Know, here's a great modern example. Uh, a quote often attributed to Nelson Mandela. Um, that quote about um, it's not it's not uh, the it's not our darkness but our light that we fear. Who are we not to be? You know what I'm talking about? That that quote. Yeah, but that's not Mandela. No, it's Marianne Williamson. Yeah. Who wrote that? But for many many years, it was attributed to Nelson Mandela because he said it, and people people. Said this is an Elsa Mandela quote. Wait, but I wasn't even thinking Marianne Williamson. It's um, Debbie Ford. No, it's Marianne Williamson. Are you sure? Because that is straight from her book. Positive. Okay. All right. Anyhow, carry quote, on. But anyways, um, so so it's 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 really fascinating when you dig into Bible history, you know, and 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 really do comparative work of the Gospels. You know, how much of it really is what happened versus what's been tweaked uh, uh, to support what the gospel writers are trying to make Jesus show up as. Yeah, but even, it doesn't matter. Even the people that you're talking about are still they're doing educated guesses. Of course. Of course. Well, all, good, yeah. all good history. You have to use the evidence at hand and do the best you can. And they acknowledge that. And that's why if you read a if you look at their work or reports of their work or get a, even a Jesus seminar version of the Bible or the Gospels, they have it color-coded for the Jesus of history definitely said this, the Jesus of history maybe said this, the Jesus of history yeah. might have said this, or definitely didn't say this. They've got like four or five or more categories uh, for how they classify all the sayings and actions of Jesus, which is fascinating, and I think, you know, it's worth uh, at least taking a peek at what they've, what they've done. Yeah. All right, so Jesus... Uh, after, uh, I believe it was the next day or two, after the entry into Jerusalem, went into the temple and caused a bit of a scene. He overturned tables and he drove out the money changers. What what was he doing that for? Uh, he had a throwdown. Jesus had a throwdown. Um, I think uh, I, I, I think that the common understanding of that is him, him not being a fan of the temple trade um, being a distractor from the real reason people should be at the temple. There was a lot of corruption going around. There was a lot of um, uh, machinations with people selling things. Uh, so, so a lot of the a lot of the folks would be selling things that people would go take for sacrifice. Uh, so, like doves or whatever. And a lot of those products were ridiculously marked up. Um, because you're supposed to bring stuff to the temple of sacrifice. You show up to do your sacrifices. You don't have anything. You gotta buy something on the spot. And so, th so people were were turning it into just a commerce place and missing the whole point of the spiritual and religious significance of what the temple represented. And um, he took he took umbrage to that. Do you think we do that today? At a dark moment. Do in what way? What do you mean? Do Do you think churches do that today? They they kind of commercialize stuff and kind of miss the whole point. Well, I mean, you got you got you got to pay the bills to keep the light on. 
that's 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 the reality that's the reality of church is that you know you have you have an infrastructure to take care of and churches pretty much uh, many of them solely function on donations from their from their parishioners and their congregants so there's an element of of how do we as a minister I'll speak as a minister how do we strike that balance between saying yes um, what you we are relying on you for your gifts and your donations so that we can keep this place going you know in the literalist of sense but also realizing that that the given tithing is a spiritual practice you know so so there's there's those two elements to it but but a church is i mean it's a business that's the reality of it it is a business as well as anything else, we have bills yeah. to pay, we got taxes to pay, we have to pay employees. There's a certain, it's a nonprofit. There's a certain business element to any nonprofit. Um, so it's you know. an organization that tries to be self-sustaining and uh, yeah. be able to carry out its ministries and also give out beyond itself. I think when we're talking about Jesus in the temple, it's helpful to remember some of what's going on. Um, who would have been coming to that temple to exchange money or to buy sacrifices. Um, primarily it would have been uh, the poor who did not have um, their own animals to bring for sacrifices, so they'd have to purchase them, or those who traveled a long ways and couldn't carry um, their sacrifices a long way. And so who they were especially marginalizing was the poor and the foreigners, and they're also doing this in... Uh, the court of the Gentiles, which was the largest court uh, in the temple, but they were taking up a big space of what would be their worship space while also taking advantage of them. Uh, and one of the things Jesus says in that moment is, uh, my father's house is to be a house for all nations, and uh, you've turned it into a den of thieves or a den of robbers. Um, so I think he's I think he's dealing with some of the um, economic abuses, but also some of the uh, that you know it's representative of the larger systemic abuses that are happening uh, against the poor and the people yeah. on the edges he's of society. Taking advantage of them. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think he, you know, I I, I think he lost his I think he lost his school. Did he? Uh, he did, and as I say to people sometimes, when they ask what Jesus would do, I remind them that overturning tables and beating people up is a viable option. Well, you don't know. Did he, he really beat people up. up? I don't remember hearing that. Throw them out with whips. I mean, I'm gonna assume one of those, some of those hits had to make contact. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, he he whipped the legs of the table and then gave a pull, and that just like upended oh, the table. Pull the Indiana Jones move. Exactly. Speaking of which, what do you guys feel about they're making another Indiana Jones movie? Oh my goodness! Don't we yeah. think Harrison Ford is a little too old for this right now? I mean, I love the man and all, but we should just have stopped after the third one. Just a wee bit. You know, the fourth one. Can do you guys see Crystal Skull? Like, yeah, he was too old for that one too. Travesty. Yeah. And now they're making another one. Him and Steven Spielberg are getting back together. I'm like, come on. They can't leave well enough alone. I know. I mean, he was just great break up already. <laughs> He was great in Star Wars. I grant him that, but let's not get. I think I think that made him get a little too confident. He's, he's getting a second wind. Exactly. What are we gonna do? Reprise Blade Runner now? I mean, come on. Let's That's... hear that music. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so, did you know that in the Gospel of John, Jesus actually fashions the cord, uh, or fashions the the whip himself? 
Oh yeah, handmade man. I mean, he's just using his skills and making a whip. He was like, I can't find nothing to beat these people with. I'm gonna make something right now, and boom. <laughs> so how did that look? You guys just stand there for a minute. Just hold on. <laughs> that was kind of MacGyver, wasn't it? And he just like, well, hey, we've got. You know, I could see him now standing there, knotting stuff together, and the disciples are like, what is he doing? I don't know. Okay, so that's Maybe not just pull, losing his. He's gonna pull some miracle with this rope. He's gonna. He's like. You know, and then the next thing you know, he's he's just like taking it out on people, and his disciples yeah. are standing there going, "What is happening?" Yeah, that's exactly. not just losing his cool. That was premeditative. If he was making a my point exactly. Well, it, yeah, and so I agree. I agree. I don't think he was losing his cool. I think he was exhibiting uh, sort of a righteous uh, justice, a righteous anger, uh, driven by a passion for justice uh, that led oh. him to do it. Sometimes we lose our cool and we explode. Sometimes we lose our cool and it's a slow boil. So, you know, there's different do ways. You, cool. Do you think Jesus sinned in the temple, Ogan? You mean when he did when he committed this act? Yes. It depends on our definition of sin. <laughs> how do you how do you do how you define sin? Disobeying God? <laughs> sin is whatever Jesus wouldn't do. <laughs> then he didn't sin because he did it. <laughs> exactly. He's off the hook. So well, upending table. I'm sorry. Did I do that? Well, do you know who I am? No. See, <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't believe he sinned because I believe when you look at at Jesus's life as described in the Gospels, it is full of him having human moments. I don't believe he was. I don't believe that he was this, um, um, just person as John would describe who who. For the most part, who fully knew, you know, past, past, present, future, equal with God in the moment. I believe he was truly a human being having human moments. You know, from the time he was tempted in the in the in the desert. I like to, uh, you know, when I take a metaphysical interpretation, I like to say he's coming face to face with his own demons uh, at that point in time. Fast forward to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's saying, "If it's your if it's your will, take this cup." From me, um, when it comes across Lazarus and Lazarus is dead and he's weeping because he's he's emotionally moved and sad. Jesus' life is filled with human moments. I think this is just another human moment. Jesus, Jesus was a man. He was a man too. Okay, but does that give people, or does that mean it's okay to use violence and anger to write something? Only if it's handmade. Exactly. It's only if it's fair trade and handmade, uh, then, then, you know, all bets are off. Uh, but no, but I mean, I think I think Jesus could be angry and not necessarily have sinned, you know. I and so and even used violence, but I think I don't think he used violence against human beings in a way that would have injured, certainly not killed them. Um, I think he's doing, he's putting out a violent act, a violent display to disrupt this system of injustice. Are you trying to keep Jesus sinless? Is that is that what's going on? It sounds like that to me. Well, I don't. I mean, I don't need to keep him sinless. I I, I more want to keep him nonviolent. So I'm more worried about the, the violence. But it, but violence is violence, Brian. If if he if he was using it to scare people, that's still it's still a threat. It's still violence. You know why, what are you I mean? trying, why are you trying to keep him yeah. nonviolent? Yeah, because I think it, he was. That's his vision. Well, let's let's remember all the non, a lot of them are non, even modern day nonviolent um, avatars. I mean, look at Nelson Mandela. 
um, Luther Cole sometimes. You know, he he started out violent. Uh, even sure. even Martin Luther King said, you know, there's there's sometimes you got to put your feet to the pavement and do your thing. I'm I'm very loosely paraphrasing, but but he did well, say something to that effect. Gandhi himself said of Jesus' uh, final week, uh, "Here we see uh, the master of nonviolence par excellence on display." Yeah. I think he meant more Friday than Thursday or Tuesday or whatever it is. Probably more. Probably was thinking more Friday. <laughs> yeah, You're right. Probably. No, you're right. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. But I don't think. I mean, I don't think he's unaware of the Tuesday Temple. No, but I think I think also you know, and we we as Christians, whether we are, you know, to use Tina's term, hardcore Christians or loosely affiliated, um, I think I think we want. We want to save Jesus in a lot of ways, whether it's the, you know, pristine, sinless Jesus or the, you know, I'm always about nonviolence and universality Jesus. We want to save Jesus a lot as opposed to just looking at what is written and go, well, yeah, Jesus Jesus had a violent moment there chasing people out of the temple. Um, yeah, Jesus had an angry moment maybe when he just cursed that fig tree unnecessarily. Yes, Jesus Ooh. had a... Had a scared moment when he said, "Take this cup from me if it's if it's your will," you know. So, uh, rather rather than save him, can we can we read objectively and say, "Hey, here's here's what happened." Does that can we take identify him off? with? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Brian. After you. Does does that um, for us to remove him from a pedestal and acknowledge those human moments? Does that take away his power? No, in in my in my um, estimation, it makes it more powerful for me because then it says, you know, if 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 Jesus is having this experience, then there's hope for me because I'm I'm having a ton of human moments. I got about five or six of them every day, right? So there, there's hope for me as well to still to still live my divinity and and be God. In the flesh, uh, to be, you know, God showing up in the midst of my humanity. Because look, Jesus, Jesus did it too. That's right. I think I agree with that. I think Jesus, seeing Jesus' humanity, and how he still was able to act in in his humanness, uh, is is super inspiring. It's less inspiring, or it could be less inspiring if, you know, well, he could have done whatever he wanted, but. Because he had all these superpowers, you know, but he did this good thing anyway. Um, it's you know, it's harder to identify with that because most of us don't have superpowers. Uh, you better be speaking not, for yourself, right there, boy. <laughs> speaking for myself. <laughs> all right, so um, let's see. On Facebook, uh, Jeff said uh, as to the significance here. Uh, he says the entry into Jerusalem and at the temple was a deliberately provocative move to undermine the sovereignty of the Roman Empire and temple leadership. Declaring oneself the Messiah in Jerusalem at Passover, in the eyes of the Romans especially, was akin to yelling fire in a crowded theater. Nice. So well done, Jeff. Thanks for yeah, tuning in. Which we should point out is, yeah, against the law. <laughs> yeah, Nicely yeah, worded, though. Which, which brings us to Friday. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah, do we want to jump ahead? I, I'm I'm cool with jumping ahead to Friday here. Well, we no, I mean literally, that's what made Friday happen because he because that's what he did, and they were like, "Yep, this is this cannot, this is not okay. We gotta take it." 
<laughs> exactly. I think that's exactly right, Ogan. Um, but I think we kind of covered four, uh, question four, but the garden and human nature and all that, his human nature. We kind of we covered that. So, yeah, let's, let's jump to five. Let's so, jump to five. Why did Jesus die? What, and what why, happened when he died? Why did he die? Because he stirred up trouble. He stirred up trouble. He, he, he defied the religious authorities and... Um, and they they portrayed it as him defying the Roman authorities. He he stirred up trouble. He questioned. He questioned. He defied authority. He called them out, basically, saying, you know, you you all are so obsessed with the letter of the law that you are neglecting the spirit of the law, which is to take care of of your fellow human being. And I'm calling you on it. And they didn't like to be called on their stuff, so he had to go. And he was he was taking the attention and popularity away from them, so they orchestrated his death, and that that's that's what I think happened. What, do you agree with that, Tina? He just kind of crossed the wrong people, or do you also think there maybe was some uh, cosmic destiny happening here that God needed Jesus to die and orchestrated it at some level? I'm gonna have to go with Ogan on this one. Cut <laughs> He just crossed the wrong people, and and um, you know, then, like I said, the, the story came after it, and they had to put the pieces together into something that made sense for everybody, that worked for everybody, that inspired people, and and kept us all going, you know. Don't ask the agnostic if there's cosmic significance. Come on, don't you know. Don't call me an agnostic. You know, I don't like labels. <laughs> uh, don't be a pluralist don't Presbyterian. Ask, <laughs> yeah, don't ask the labelless unbeliever. <laughs> about cosmic significance. You know, you know where that question is going to go. So, you know, so but but seriously, a lot of people have a view, uh, I mean, maybe half or more Christians would assume that Jesus death yeah, he provoked some of the wrong people, but also God had set this up intentionally from before the beginning of time as sort of the key to this uh, plan of salvation through his death uh, and later resurrection. Um, I know you don't take that view, Ogan, but do you? You know that view, I assume. Oh, at and the end of the bus. Wow. <laughs> I'm not throwing you under the bus. You just told me it's... the view, and you didn't include that. Um, you know what? That um, so I'll, I'll I will I will I will say this. Um, yeah, you're right. I don't I don't take I don't take that view. Um, that that this was a predestined um, setup, an idea. I, I believe it was. Um, an idea created after the fact to make sense of Jesus' death. That still doesn't, for me, take away from the significance of his death and the, and the example that he showed of surrender and, and truly give himself over to, to a higher purpose by, by doing that. And for me, that higher purpose is, is demonstrating sacrifice again. And, and yeah. so, so you see it as a, a model uh, of love in the face of uh, hate and violence and, and so forth. Do you, do you see at all that uh, human salvation is accomplished in Jesus' death? Um, I see human salvation accomplished in Jesus' entire life. Uh, and oh, every well said. Every facet right. of his life, his birth, his death, his his quote unquote resurrection. We're gonna get to that later. Um, to how he treated other people. That's that's the inspiration for me. For me, salvation in a unity context is um, 
is is how how do we live as the divine in every single moment every single moment every encounter we have with someone else everything that comes in our life if we live as the divine that's that's our salvation and i and in so much that jesus demonstrated that for us he showed us that it could be done yeah we can look to him as an example of the model of of salvation but i don't yeah. think i don't think it's it hinges upon his his death. If he didn't if he didn't die any other way, if Jesus lived to the ripe old age of eighty and died of natural causes, he'd still be an inspiration. We and wouldn't even be here right now talking. Well, but Brian, I, I, I over fifty percent of the people in my life believe exactly what you're saying about you know yeah. the red the resurrection being the whole like, um, the the whole meaning. But I. I agree with Ogan, like, and I, and I grew up in a Christian church, and I taught Sunday school. Third time what? she's been with me tonight. Uh, I, know. I know. I've had too much wine. Um, <laughs> well, hey, it is a two-beer night right here. So. <laughs> Have another glass. But I... I grew up in a Christian church, and and I taught Sunday school, and I, you know, and it was it was a traditional church, and but my biggest problem, okay, maybe it wasn't my biggest. I had a lot of problems, but. One of my biggest problems was that the whole focus is on the death instead of his life. And that's where I agree with Ogan that his life is the resurrection. His life was the point of how to live. Not that not that his death was meaningless, but I, I think people give it way more significance. Like it wasn't that he died and rose from the grave. It it was that he lived in a manner that we should all be striving to live. Yeah, and that's you know that's a theory of the soundtrack I'd be playing it right now. That was, oh, thanks. That was well said. <laughs> that was well said, and and you know there's actually a theory of atonement uh, called the moral exemplar theory, which I think you guys have both at some level articulated that Jesus' life is that sort of ultimate example of uh, of love, of compassion, of of forgiveness in the face of being dealt your worst, and uh, you know something that. In its very in its very act of that incredible, uh, you know, him being able to say, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing." Like as they're nailing him, like there's pow there's real power in that example mm -hmm. that can inspire us to new levels of love and life and forgiveness. That without that example, we might not aspire to. Um, and I, you know, I, I I like that, and I resonate with that a lot. And uh, you know, I have. I've moved away from the sort of classic uh, substitutionary uh, or penal substitutionary atonement, often known as PSA for short, not to be confused with public service announcement. I'm I'm, I'm proud of you for your for your evolution. Yeah, so I mean, I, so, you know, now I you know I I think God chooses to forgive us, and we see in Jesus. Uh, the divine power of someone forgiving his enemies at an ultimate level, and I think to me that's a picture of how God is toward all of humanity, extending love, grace, and forgiveness. I don't think uh, Jesus or that God needed a bloody sacrifice to happen in order to be able to forgive people, because I think that shows a very limited view of God. I don't think God forgives us. Well I, think, I think God doesn't hold anything against us in the first place, so there's nothing to forgive. Yeah. Yeah, I differ with you there, but you know, we we should we should agree to disagree. You really you really think you really think God's holding a bit of a grudge and has to forgive some of us? Really? 
I don't think there's a grudge at all. I just think that there's a there's a maybe acceptance is a better word that accepts us in in all of our humanity and all of our flaws and all of that's our. What, that's what I'm saying. There's nothing to forgive. Forgiveness implies that a wrong was done. So therefore, I have to forgive you for this wrong you did against me. How can we do a wrong against God? I don't believe that. I don't believe a God is that petty. I, I do several wrongs uh, against God before I even had my first cup of coffee. <laughs> I think that would imply that God has an ego, or that God Ooh. has a to-do to list of of rights and wrongs. I mean, I believe that's a very archaic view of God. I don't think God is. Um, it, it has a has a naughty and nice list like Santa Claus, you know. So I don't think there's anything for us to forgive if if, if God is. Like question. What? I, I like what you're saying. Say more. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, well, if 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 God is the definition of love, if God is love, you know, then and <clears throat> nothing but love, then there's 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 no chance we are wronging God. To to imply that we are doing a wrong against God or not giving God what God needs applies implies that there is some element of there's there's something God needs. How how can God need anything? Whether we take the pan pantheistic or the panentheistic view that we talked about earlier, you know, if God is all there is or all is in God or God is in all, what is there that God's lacking for us to need or to do? So how can we obey or disobey? What is there to forgive? You, you get what I'm saying? I I, I, I get it. It's an archaic view that that you know that continues to evolve. So you're calling my view archaic. I heard that you're evolving. You you're you're no. evolving. You're coming around. I'll I'll wait for you over here. I, I called you a caveman, Brian. But I do know that we <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I do know that we have different views of of God. Um, I don't think, I think people I, have the, two people have the same view of God. <laughs> well, fine, fine. <laughs> But you know, I'm not in a place of uh, where unity is uh, in terms of God. I do think God is uh, is a out there, uh, existing in a in a fashion, and has uh, desires and agency, and and is able to forgive or able to display what forgiveness is like, as we see in Jesus. Um, so for me, and 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 we talked about this before, but I'll say it again. For me, this, to say God has desires implies that God lacks something. For me, for me, if if I say if I use words like um, omniscience, omnipresent, all that is, alpha and omega, beginning and the end. If I'm using these words to to describe God, what could God possibly desire? What is God lacking that God needs to desire? To desire means there's something you don't have. Right, so I'm just saying. Sure. That's all I'm saying. Forgiveness implies lack. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because forgiveness means that there was a lack of love to begin with. So you did something. Is that true, though? Or I mean, conditions. don't don't you need to forgive uh, a child or a friend? Uh, there's not a lack of love. It's just. Things happen, and you might have done it otherwise, and so you uh, you ask forgiveness. No, I, I believe I believe it's a lack of love because if I truly love, if I truly love this person unconditionally, then and I am clear that my love in them is not conditioned. This is all theory. I'm not saying I live this way, but I'm saying if 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 I truly love this, I love my daughter unconditionally. Okay, 
So uh, if she does if she does something the to anger me, that means I've forgotten in the moment of my conditional love for her. I've just placed a condition on my love for her. So for me to forgive her, that means I I've I've lost the context of love. And and I've gone upset about something because I've had some attachment to how it should look, if if that kind of makes sense. So so that that's what I'm, that's my context of forgiveness. My does that make sense? Maybe it's a different way of saying the same thing. I don't know. What do you mean you will what? never forgive me? Why will you I never forgive think, me? Why why are you attaching love to you forgiveness? You don't need forgiveness, so I'll never forgive you. <laughs> well well played. Again. You like that? Nicely played. That's right. Well. Right. But right. why why is love why are you saying it like like you can't who are you talking to? You. Okay, go ahead. Why are you saying it like like forgiveness and love are like to me there there's not a correlation. Like just because there's something to forgive doesn't mean you do, you don't love that person. It No, what what I'm saying what I'm saying is if we if we judge ourselves to be hurt, wounded by someone that that means we've we have placed we've placed a condition on them of you 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 have to have done it this way you know so so uh, uh, yeah expectations and for me unconditional love can't have expectations if we have expectations we've just placed a condition on on the love and i don't okay. believe god places conditions on us no, that makes sense. Because that's again God having an expectation of desire that it looks a certain way, and if God kind of is all there is, or is in all that is, imminent and transcendent, what is there to desire? What is there to place a condition on? You know, what is lacking? There's nothing lacking. I place expectations on people because I want them to behave a certain way because I feel that way is the right way because of my lack of ability to love unconditionally. I don't believe God has the ability to love uncondition to love conditionally. God is unconditional love. So if there's unconditional love, really there's kind of nothing to forgive. Mm. That's that's just my theory. That is your that is just your theory. I think you're the only one. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> Getting spicy now. There we go. All right, all right. So what if Jesus had died quietly as an old man in his sleep? Would we would we be talking about him right now? Would would his no, not nearly as much? Would he it wouldn't be as sensationalized. Wouldn't be as sensationalized. Yeah. No, and I think that's that's the that's the power of the death and resurrection story, regardless of if it happened or not. I think whether it happened or not is beside the fact. That's 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 my theory. No, see, seriously, whether whether it actually happened. Or it's a really good, and I'm not saying which one it is, whether it happened or not, or it's a really good story someone created. The point is, what is the story saying to us? And, and is the meaning or the moral behind the story any less effective because it didn't happen? I'll give you a good example. The story of the Good Samaritan. The story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan didn't actually happen. He was telling a story. He was creating a story. Not not a replay of actual events. But that the, never happened? What? <laughs> no, it didn't happen. Nice. But 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 the but you know, the the point he was trying to teach in that story and all the multiple layers, you know, 
still holds true, still holds true to this day. I mentioned this on Palm Sunday. It was such a powerful story, even our, even in today's culture. We have the Good Samaritan Law that protects people against being sued when they do something good to save another person and fail. You know, so so the 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 thing didn't have to actually happen for the story to have power and meaning. This is the power behind. That's why Jesus spoke in parables. And, and, and told stories because of the power to move people. And I think that when we, whether we look at the, you know, crucifixion and resurrection as actual historical events, or we just look at it as a story that was being told, there's still such immense inspiration and power and, and opportunity for transformation within them that, that regardless of where we are on the spectrum from, you know, slightly believing to hardcore believer, we can take something from it. All right, all right. Uh, I think I've stumped the panel. <laughs> I don't know, Brian looks like he's thinking and he's not talking. Yeah, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree that if Jesus had died as an old man in his sleep, we probably wouldn't be talking about him. His life would not have had the lasting power and impact, and I don't think we'd have all the theories of divinity, etc., that we do have. Um, and I think, as you noted, as you well noted, that the resurrection story tying in with the, with the crucifixion is part and parcel to um, what has made the man, the myth, the legend. Um, and let's not forget that, you know, uh, virgin birth, crucifixion, resurrection is not a storyline uh, unique to Jesus. There, there are right. other people in other cultures and myths that, that have the same story. So, you know, put that out there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there are other traditions that uh, have exactly virgin births and, um, and deaths and resurrections. Uh, yeah. But, you know, uh, a, a way C.S. Lewis would deal with that, or Christian apologists, is to say those are all imitations of the real thing that uh, happened in Jesus. Like, Jesus was the real resurrection. Those were all, you know... But those, some of those stories... Mythic imitations. Those were mythic predated Jesus. How could they... Some of those stories predated Jesus. They were, How could they they were priming the pump culturally. They were priming the pump. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's, that's too funny. That's too funny. Just, just getting people warmed up. You know, this might oh. happen. So easy, easy example. Hercules from from Greek mythology, and interestingly yeah. enough, we already call it Greek mythology. You know, nobody's walking around thinking, you know, there was Zeus and all these gods and all that. We we acknowledge that that's mythology. Hercules was born of God and of you know human mother, you know, divine parentage as well. You know, but no one's no one's thinking, hey, you know, we should use Hercules as an example of you know, go be saved by Hercules, but but for some reason, because of the way history unfolded around Christianity and the way Christianity you know, grew up over the centuries, we've, we've, we've ascribed this to, to Jesus, but again, again that's not, not a unique not a unique story, the virgin birth all right, I'm I'm really uh, tempted to get into this nonviolence question, but I think we'll jump ahead to next question. What happened on Easter morning? What is your view of the resurrection, and how central is this uh, in your faith? 
Let's go with Tina. What do you think happened Easter morning? I was say, he's talking to you. Um, <laughs> I'm deferring. I have to say, um, I I think Jesus go for it. had. <laughs> I, I got you Jesus, back. I know. I feel like if anybody I know is listening to this, I'm. They're not speaking to me ever again. Um, I I think what happened was. Um, he had this incredible ability to heal himself, um, and he exercised it. And I, I don't doubt that God had a hand in it. Um, I think God very much works through us, but I don't think it's exclusively Jesus that can do it. I think we're all capable of it. Oh, really? Just, I think he just he just tapped into it. So he healed himself, so you would hold to the view that uh, when the women went to the tomb, and then later Peter and other disciples, that it literally was empty, and that the body was no longer there. Yeah, I, I can believe that. I can hold to that. Oh, I believe it was empty and the body wasn't there. I don't believe it was empty and the body wasn't there for the reasons we think. Oh, well, you conspiracy theorists? <laughs> It's just, all about the story, Ogan, right? Just, just, just saying. <laughs> so tell, so explain. Uh, are you sure you want me to go there? Uh, so well, yes, sure. I, I mean, I, I thought you would say that they never I mean, went to yes, the tomb, I'm, or I'm the eternal skeptic. So um, do I? Do I believe there was a there was a physical resurrection as as we describe? Uh, no, no, I don't. I believe this was another example of. Um, a well-crafted story that um, was was created again to to kind of tie up this Jesus life story that people were trying to ex explain. Um, now I say that, and I add the caveat of: Does it really? Does what the story represent? ultimately matter to if it actually happened or not. So back to that back to that question. If a tree falls in forest and no one's wrong to hear it, did it did it make a sound? Right? So again, depends on how you define sound. Is the sound a disruption right. of airwaves? Yes, it made a sound. Um, so if the Son of God rises from the dead in a cave and no one sees it. Did, did he happen? actually rise? Maybe he did. I, get, I mean, we can we can make that argument. Maybe I used the wrong metaphor. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> but for me, for me, so the whole the whole Holy Week story experience, you know, the crucifixion and the resurrection, for me, for me, represents that I, idea that you know. In our darkest of times, when we are at our lowest of lows, and it seems like we are abandoned, you know, it's not the end of the story. There's always going to be more. There's always there's always another opportunity for us to show up as the divine, you know, which is what I believe we're ultimately called to do. To to show up, we are the hands, the feet, the face of God, and there will always be another opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's nice and a nice lesson one could draw but but they, I mean we're talking about he was dead like dead okay so once you're dead there's not like oh well you know you just got to turn the corner and there's another chance for you know I mean if he if he's dead and that's the end but then he's alive 
like really alive, not just mythically or metaphorically alive. But it was really alive because of the the stories of him appearing to other people. I, I'm saying let's play devil's advocate and okay. let's let's take them at face value and say if he is now alive, it's a lot more than just oh you can feel better after a, you know a difficult stretch in your life. It's like no, when you die, you too will. Be raised to new life one day, uh, you know what I mean? I mean that's that's what. Who says he? Yeah. Okay. That's what people are celebrating on Easter I morning know. when they say, "Up from the grave he arose." But they're very he, literal. Did he really? <laughs> but Brian, Brian, look at the doctors back then. I mean, even a hundred years ago, they were saying people were dead when they really weren't. I mean, they had to have bells on the graves. Just my personally, I don't think he was completely 100% dead. Oh, you don't think he was dead all the way? Okay, Ogan. That's one. That's one way to go. No, I. I so my conspiracy theorist self would say yes, he was dead all the way. Yes, they put him in the tomb, and on Saturday night in the wee hours, somebody came, got that body out, as and is and 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 created. Cre- Brian, you got to say these things out loud, man. Come on, dude. Don't be typing them in the sidebar. These are hilarious. Zed's dead, baby. Zed's dead. <laughs> if you're going to reference Pulp Fiction, you got to do it out loud. All right, all right. I didn't want to talk over you. I didn't want to interrupt. No, no, that was worth it, though. If you're going to talk over me and it's going to be that funny, I will, I will all right, all right. feed the floor to you. That was hilarious. As you were. Um, there you go. I made me forget what I was saying. Yeah, so I believe that they did come <laughs> out uh, uh, and maybe maybe got the body. Or 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 maybe after the fact the story was just written. But again, ultimately it doesn't matter to me. Doesn't it doesn't matter. it doesn't matter to me because because I don't take any of the Bible literally. I don't. But uh, but when you look at the lives and testimonies of the earliest followers of Jesus who gave their lives under uh, torture and arrest and being killed on a conviction that Jesus was dead and he was raised. Well, I, I can give my life for anything. It doesn't mean it happened. Ah, dang it. <laughs> but doesn't it, doesn't it lend itself? Like, if this was like, oh, you know, Mark and Matthew wrote this nice little story. Actually, Mark Mark's ending was added later. Okay, Matthew and John. and For the authors of Luke. Mark. Of, of the course, author. the authors. The authors. But, but listen, nice. I, I, am in, I am in awe of people who have that level of conviction and belief that they're willing to die for it. I I honestly can't sit here and say I'm that brave that I would die for a conviction or a belief. I would die for my child. That's right. that's kind of about it right now. Um, yeah. I can't say that I would do that. So the fact that they could hold that conviction and belief is inspiring beyond words. But look at how many pe- millions of people have done that for beliefs that we know are not right. Or real. So, yeah. you know, because... So people dying for it is not proof of its veracity. No. no it's just proof that. of the personal conviction. That's exactly. it. You know... You guys are such skeptics. Such, <laughs> such downers. <laughs> but no, no. But but see, here's, here's, the, here's the thing. This is... For me, it's not a downer. For me, it's an upper, actually. Mm-hmm. Because there are people, there are people who find out or have doubts about the literalism of the Bible and about, you know, if this didn't happen, why should I believe it? Why should I believe? And I'm saying, 
you can believe the message. You can have a conviction about something without it actually having to have happened. That's perfectly okay, especially if it's a conviction that brings you closer to God, to the essence of the divine that you are. If it's a conviction that leads you into compassion of your fellow man, it's a conviction that leads you to love. If, you, if you're going to have those convictions, which I think as best as I can understand it, Jesus demonstrated in his life, have those convictions. Then the story behind it didn't necessarily need to be real. The events didn't necessarily need to be real. Yeah, but the, you know, the Apostle Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It's you know, like saying Jesus' parables were useless. That's not fair. And Paul never met Jesus. I ain't holding out Paul as... You know, <laughs> he said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Everybody dies, my friend. Look at that. That's a little Pauline pub theology. Sounds like Bob Marley, actually. <laughs> let, us right? just eat, let us eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. But we all, we all, we all going to die. And I'm not holding Paul as any authority who, on one hand... Said, you know, under Christ is neither, you know, master, slave, male or female. We're all one under Christ. But then, on the right. other hand, said, slaves obey your masters. Right. So, you know. I think Paul was an opportunist. Just saying. He's a little skittish. He he kind he kind of was. And if you read, what was it? Ah, oh, shoot, I forgot what book it was. Um, that I read. But the idea that that here comes Paul, you know, after the life of Jesus, never met the man. Decides he's going to become the spokesperson for Christianity, and the early, the very earliest church of Christians or belie Jewish believers in Jesus, yeah. you know, led by Jesus's actual brother James, was like, "Dude, who made you the spokesperson? You weren't around. You didn't see all of this happening. You know, so sorry, you don't, you don't, you don't, you don't get the chair. You don't, you don't get to be this." And Paul decides, "Well, forget y'all," and off he goes, and starts writing, you know. Forming churches and preaching, where I'm, I'm sure Paul had a good conviction conversion experience, but you know, I, I'm like he, he never walked with Jesus, never met the man. Well, and who did he actually meet on the road? You know, was it the physical Jesus? Was it an apparition of Jesus? I mean, it seems to me he had a vision of a non-physical Jesus, and if Paul had a vision of a non-physical Jesus, why couldn't the disciples have had a vision of the non-physical Jesus? So, um, good point, Brian. Um, and to that point, I would, I would, I would cite the uh, mystical. We all, some of us, have mystical experiences. Okay, so we have mystical experiences, and when many of us have mystical experiences, again, they're in that context of our belief system. Same thing with people who have near-death experiences. A lot of times, when they speak of their near-death experience in God, is within the cultural religious context in which they were growing up and of their time. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I would hazard to say that Paul maybe did have a mystical uh, experience for whatever reason, because again, when I've, I've done a bunch of reading on people who've had mystical experiences, they don't go seeking them. It, it, they're often spontaneous and, and happen to them. And I'm sure he felt that it was Jesus and decided he's going to turn his life around, no different than the captain of the slave ship who wrote Amazing Grace, and, and off he goes. But again, yeah. what, what you just said, Ogan, is that um, it's that whole thing where people see things that are beyond their understanding and they make them fit into what they understand. So his mystical experience, he made it fit into what he was hearing about that day and time.
Possibly. 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 Definitely possibly. You know, uh, social media is strangely silent on this resurrection question. Nobody wants to out themselves as to their (laughs) real view of what happened on Easter morning publicly. Either that or because we've gone so long, they've all like fallen asleep. They're all done. Or we made them all angry and we have no memories. Also a metaphor. Uh, They've they fall well. They fell asleep in the garden. We know so. Well, well, well. There you go. But you see, here, here, here's the thing. It's, it's, it's very tricky to, especially in this modern day and age, you know, reconcile or belief with with what we what we know historically. So it's really it's a really difficult place to be in a position when we know um, some historical um, facts and context about how when the Bible was written. It's it, it's a tricky place to say you know here are certain aspects of the Bible that necessarily don't apply to us anymore, but then we feel compelled to still stick with certain parts and hold them as true. It's it's a weird place to be in sometimes. So, you know, I think I think that's part of our spiritual struggle and and our spiritual growth to to wrestle with these things, um, and to see where we might be divinely led uh, to make to make sense of them. You know, so uh, you know to to give a good example, it's a little bit off the beaten track, but not really, because we we're talking about understanding the Bible. You know, I'll throw my mother under the bus. She 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 does not she does not um, support the idea of same sex marriage or even homosexuality. It's a sin. It's abnormal. It goes against God because the Bible says what it says about homosexuality. Okay, and now here. But then I say to her, but then I say to her, <clears throat> um, if you want to hold the Bible and what it says, then you should not be an independent woman who is an entrepreneur who holds a position of authority in church. Truth. So right. how are you going to reconcile those two things? You're just going to take part of the Bible and hold to it because of what you believe personally, and then throw out the others. So it's kind of isn't a weird. Isn't that what everyone thing. does, though, Ogan? Isn't isn't that Pretty much well, un- un- unless you kind of throw out any attempts to try and make sense with the literal. Is inter- Brian okay? <laughs> no, Brian. Brian is laughing ridiculously at his own joke. <laughs> so that was not right. Things out loud, man. It's really not right. Okay. It's really okay. I want to. You, you said I'm gonna throw mom under the bus, and I just couldn't help but think of grandma got run over by a reindeer. <laughs> Just hit me. When you see them after the fact, they lose some of their zing. Because, you know, come no, on. It, stop it. It was, inside, it was an inside joke. It was an inside it joke. It doesn't matter. Sorry, sorry listeners. Listen, here's the thing. This is why people, honestly, like, you should watch the live stream. Because this is usually after the, the after show is usually when this side of Brian comes out and he says it out loud. <laughs> Ditches. He's a funny Ooh. guy, but I don't know. For some reason, when we are officially recording, he wants to hold back the funny. Don't hold back the funny, man. Well, because I'm trying to have a. We're trying to have a. We're talking about serious issues, so I'm trying to, you know, portray Listen, that. So we can bring humor to serious issues. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and. Absolutely, absolutely. So one person did chime in on what happened on Easter morning. Tommy says. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 28 sums it up nicely, and I had referred to that earlier. Um, Paul saying, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. So there you go. Well, I mean, that's not, that's not the part he was referring to, but that, that's the part I mentioned. Well, look at that. Uh, he, listen, even if the resurrection didn't happen, we're going to eat and drink, and we're going to be dead 
tomorrow or someday it's gonna happen <laughs> like that's that's kind of life in summation and reality yeah you know I, I I'm fairly sure that's not what what Paul was referring to but again again because of Paul believing the narrative or believing or having that same conviction again not that there's anything wrong with having that conviction but but we always got to for me is we always got to be careful of if we're going to take pieces of the bible literally are we going to take the whole thing literally are we going to pick and choose you know it's it's a weird place to be in and then you know we got to bring up the ideas of interpretation and all that kind of stuff and it can get really complicated so it can get complicated so we're going to leave you with a bonus question um, if Jesus death was necessary for salvation and handing him over to the Roman authorities was the key to precipitating his death should we not view Judas's betrayal as a great heroic act in which he sacrifices himself and his own eternal destiny on behalf of all humanity. Go, Judah! That is a whole hour show in and of itself. I mean, <laughs> Judas Priest, you know, holy show right there. There you go. There you go. Now I think Judas, I think Judas is pushing the envelope and doing, doing, doing his bit to call out. Short, short answer, I believe, I believe, Judas wanted Jesus to be something that he wasn't. He wanted Jesus to be that political messiah as well. Right. And he's like, I'm going, I'm going to force your hand. I think, yeah, I like that view. I like that view. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also trying to paint Judas in a good light. Maybe he just was a little, you know, on the dark side of things. Yeah, yeah. Money Jesus needed a little help getting that revolution going. So Exactly. Every Luke Skywalker well, is Darth Vader. That goes to everybody in our life is either a coach or a challenger, and Jesus needed a challenger, and Judas mm. stepped up. Good, good, good. So if he ever, everybody if he ever needs, if he needs any witnesses on his behalf before you know before God, it's final yeah, judgment. Kind of... <laughs> you sure? That could be, be risky. Could be risky. That should be next. That should be next week's show. What? What? We what, could. What, yeah, we could get into that. I like it. Final judgment thing. Yeah, I like it. Well, we, we are hitting an hour and a half, friends, so I think we're going to steer to a close. Thanks to those who listened in live, and thanks to all who are tuning in later on the podcast. Please help connect and spread the word about Pup Theology Live on social media. You can listen anytime, uh, as we said, on soundcloud.com slash Live or your favorite uh, podcast app. But you should really watch the live show because that's... That's that's when you miss your facial expressions. Facial expressions, and then especially if we do some after-show discussion, and Brian Brian really lets himself go a little bit more. <laughs> the live show is where the magic happens. I'm, definitely, I'm, we're bringing him out. He was doing pretty good tonight. Definitely. Now, if you want to find a pub theology conversation that's happening in your own town, you can go to pubtheology.com uh, and look on the map there. And we want to, again, give a shout-out and thanks to our sponsor, Craft Beer Cellar. Visit craftbeercellar.com for a location near you. And remember, keep listening all this month. We've got one more show in March. And then in two weeks, we'll announce our winner of our gift certificate to Craft Beer Cellar. So thanks for tuning in to our holy show. We are out. Happy Easter.